though I am, <clears throat> though I am never wrong, there are times when I am given to confusion. <clears throat> I wondered why you were snickering at me when I said, Taka Airlines. There were two airlines <laughs> down there. It was Sasha Airlines that was stay at home and stay alive. Taka Airlines was take a chance airlines. There it goes. Now, 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 now don't you feel bad about making fun of me? <clears throat> nope. Who said nope? Did you say nope? It sounded like you're nope. Like many, many times when I asked you, did you do this? Or your wife said, were you there? And you said, nope. It sounded like you're nope. We're back to Proverbs chapter 6 today, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to pick it up where we left off. I, you know, the book of Proverbs is, is one of the most <laughs> practical books of all of the Bible. We, we know that. We, we've talked about that many, many times in, in our coming through the first six chapters. Yet at the same time, <clears throat> it's probably one of the deepest books in the Bible as far as a, a prophetic application. A lot of uh, all of this has much to do with uh, the nation of Israel and, 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 their, and their relationship with God, and we've talked about that. And, you know, I, I try to, in teaching it to you, try to keep a, a good balance between the practical and the doctrinal. You know, we started out at chapter 6, and I talked about the six things that, that God hates, and then the Bible says, yea, the seventh is an abomination. And that's a great study to see um, how that uh, uh, these are not the character qualities uh, that we want to be associated with in our lives. And that was a great practical uh, concept, keeping them out of our lives and building, you know, Christian uh, values and qualities, character qualities of God in our lives uh, through the principles found in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs in particular. Then you remember I came back the next week and I showed you how that those same seven things represented in a prophetic way, we call it a doctrinal way, a specific teaching, how the devil attacked the nation of Israel down through man's history from the beginning of the Bible uh, all the way up to where we're at today. And then last week, uh, we talked about again in a very practical way, keeping the Word of God in your heart uh, and around your neck. We talked about your heart being a representation of your attitude toward God and your neck being a representing your, your will toward God. How that the Word of God is light uh, in a dark world and a lamp unto our journey. I, I showed you all kinds of different things about that. I showed you how that the Bible is a Christian survival book. Gave you all the different aspects that we have to survive with. Showed you how that the Bible was five different lights when it says it's a lamp under my feet to light your way through life. And by now, going back and forth, you should have a pretty good understand that primarily this book, as it's aimed, it's aimed at the nation of Israel. I, I tell you all the time that all everything in the Bible uh, is for us one way or the other, but not everything in the Bible is written directly to us. And we've talked about this uh, in uh, over and over again as we've come through this, that uh, there's some great parallels between the nation of Israel and the church. The nation of Israel, we know, was God's counterpart in the Old Testament. The church today is God's counterpart in the New Testament. 
And even though much of this in Proverbs and much of this throughout the Bible is written specifically for Israel, you can't fail to see the parallels between the two. I'm God's son. Bible says, by a new birth, I was made and put into God's family, made in his image, and now I'm God's child. I'm God's son. So are you. Yet the Bible says, in a national sense, Exodus chapter 4, Israel is God's son. When you look, and we've talked about it, when you look at how God used Israel in the Old Testament to get his message to the world, and then how God uses the church in the New Testament to get the message to the world, you begin to see how the great parallels uh, will all come. No matter what he says to Israel, there'll be a practical application that we can apply to us. And this is what I've been trying to convey as we've come through the book of Proverbs. And up to this point, all this material we have seen has been given to Israel uh, to keep them from being deceived. And yet it's practical sense it's been given to us to keep us from being deceived. You know, the my son concept as we talked about. They, you know, these Old Testament wisdom books were highly regarded by the Jews. The Jews broke their Old Testament down into three sections. And part of that section was the wisdom books. And uh, they, they were very highly regarded, much as we do today when we talked about the book of Proverbs. This material was given to Israel to keep him from being deceived and destroyed by the man of sin, which we know as the devil. And through the seven things that we talked about early on in this chapter a couple of weeks ago. And we also know that Israel never obeyed God in anything that God told them to do. Israel, in spite of the warnings of God, in spite of what he, he said here in the book of Proverbs. And, and I told you, if you remember, that the book of Proverbs basically has three applications. First of all, when Solomon is writing it, he's writing it to his own son. And that was Rehoboam. And he's giving his own son instructions because he knows that someday Rehoboam is going to take over the throne of God. And so he gives these things to Rehoboam out of the vast wisdom that Solomon has. Well, Rehoboam didn't do a thing with it. In fact, Rehoboam turned out to be one of the most disappointing people probably in all the Bible. Uh, he splits the kingdom along with Jeroboam and all the other Boam boys, and they, they messed the whole thing up. See? So historically, we know it goes to him. But in a prophetic sense, in a doctrinal sense, that my son goes to Israel. Because in an Old Testament sense, Israel is God's son. In a practical way, you and I are God's son. So you can see how the book of Proverbs really flows uh, down through uh, here, and we can get a lot of great things out of it. And it's in this passage today that we see uh, the avenging of Israel by God. Uh, we know that just as Rehoboam didn't obey God, and just like many times we don't obey God when he gives us the issues of life, Israel didn't do it either. And they went a-whoring after other gods. They forsook the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that brought them out of Egypt, the God that formulated them through Genesis, and they're drawn in and enticed by the false religions of Israel's day, which anybody who knows a little bit about the Bible knows that's Baal worship. Baal worship was the worship of the sun god. Baal worship was rampant in the Old Testament. There's many different variations of it, but it basically revolved around the sun as being the center of everything and, and worshiping the sun. And Egyptians did it with Ra. He's their sun god. The Babylonians did it with Baal. That was their sun god. 
Uh, another group did it with Ashtoreth. That was the female deity that goes along. And it was, it was a thing where you had, the, you had the son as the male figure, the woman as the female figure, and, um, and then the religion was based on those concepts. And in this passage today we're about to look at, once we begin to put it into the context here of dealing with Israel, we see God avenging Israel, and we also see His anger and His wrath that we see displayed in the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period and as he comes back because of what uh, the evil man and the strange woman have done to the nation of Israel. Now let me, let me begin to read this, and I'm going to start with last week's text, and I'm going to add this week's text to it so you can see now how this applies. Last week I, I, I gave it to you. I showed you how this was right down your line, and there was many things in there. If you're here today as a New Testament Christian and you got that down, there's many things there now that you learn for your own walk with God. Now let me show you today the doctrinal side of it. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and the reproof of instructions are the way of life. Well, that's what we read last week, and that's basically, we made comment on that. Now we're going to add that to what we're going to look at today and see how this thing kind of works out for us here. Verse 24. All of this in 20, 21, 22, 23, now we're going to see what it was about and what it was for to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with thy eyelids, her eyelids. Uh, for by means of a whorish woman is a man brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes and be not burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Uh, so he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that goeth uh, doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For the jealousy is a rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in a day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he, uh, he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. Now, Father, help us today as we <clears throat> look at this and try to put this in the uh, context of, of what it's really talking about here, and yet uh, not to ignore the practical applications. Help us to kind of come back and forth here and, and make this passage clear. Uh, we've got uh, many people in this church, Lord, who are serious Bible students. They have invested their life in learning the Bible, so this will be very good for them. And then there's others who are just beginning that process, and, and this on their level will be very good for them. So help us to get what we need out of this. Help me to lay it out, Father, that's understandable in an easy format. And Father, by your Spirit today, we pray you'll guide and bless us, and we thank you now for all you do. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, even though the practical approach of this fits right into modern-day America, you can see this 
without a, any help at all, how this is, in a practical way, what it deals with. The doctrinal application in the context is aimed straight at the nation of Israel and his going after all the other gods, in particular, Baal worship. All this centers around, if you noticed what we've read, the evil man and the strange woman, both whom we have met before in our study in chapter 2 and other places, and we're only going to get more involved with them as we move into the next chapter. We now know, for those of you who maybe haven't been along with us in our study, <coughs> the evil man is basically the devil personified. The evil man here represents the world system. The evil man here will be the man of sin in particular. The, the, the evil man uh, who uh, has by design created every philosophy of life, every ology, theology, <clears throat> every false teaching, everything that the world puts out there that you and I would fall into that would pull us away from God. It, it's just that simple. I don't care, every nation, every government, no matter how it starts, even if it starts with God, the evil man is going to try to take that nation away from God. Hey, we don't have to look any farther than our own country, uh, the United States of America, to see that. Our founding fathers, many of them were, <clears throat> were saved, born-again men. The ones that even were not, that maybe were deists, uh, were men who, who honored God and believed God, and they certainly knew that how God important God was. When, we, when they first formed and wrote the Declaration of Independence, and they brought the first draft to, for them to look at, the founding fathers recognized that uh, the, the, the writers who were putting it together had only made one reference to God uh, in reference to the United States. They rejected it. They sent it back, and they told them, we can never forget what God has done for this country. And so when it came back in its final form, it had a reference of four times that it referenced God. They added in there because the founding fathers knew. The founding fathers knew how absolute and important it was to, uh, to never forget what God had done for this country. And yet look where we're at today. And it, it, it shows you the only way we got from where our founding fathers were to where the United States is today is because of the evil man. The evil man and his teachings and his philosophy and his theology and all theology, psychology, philosophy, all the things that, uh, that the world comes up with, they exist for one reason, to take you away from God and to replace it with something that is man-made and it's man-made by the evil man. We got then the strange woman. The strange woman, we've defined her before, will be the organization of false religion. It'll be the false religion of the world today. But in particular, in our teaching here as it deals with the nation of Israel, it'll be Baal worship. And it was Baal worship in the connection with the evil man and the strange woman that brought about the fall of the nation of Israel. You'll remember when I defined that for you, we went back to 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. And I showed you the model of this in the Bible was Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was the king of Israel, the wickedest king Israel ever had, no question about it. 
But he had a wife, and his wife was named Jezebel. Jezebel is not a good name to name your daughter. <laughs> You'll find that there's two names that are pretty much absent from the baby name list. One of them will be Jezebel, and the other one will be Judas. In all my years, I've never met a guy named Judas. In all my years, I've never met a woman who said, Hi, my name is Bob. Hi, my name is Jezebel. I never met that. For some reason, those two names are taken off the baby name list. And it's because of what they represent. And I, I showed you how that Ahab, as the king of Israel, he represented the evil man. In the Old Testament, there's 18 men that if you would go through Genesis and work your way through, you'll find 18 men who foreshadow the coming man of sin, the Antichrist. Somebody says, why is there 18? Because 666 equals 18. He, there are 18 men who foreshadow the coming man of sin, the evil man. Ahab is one of them. Jezebel, on the other hand, represents the false religious systems of the world. And uh, you're going to find in our story back there in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, though Ahab is the king, Jezebel is the religious prophetess. She's got 400 prophets of Baal. And she stands in contest with Elijah, who's God's man. And you have in that story, if you want to take the time to, to glean it all out and look at it, or on Thursday night ask the question, I can walk you through those chapters and give you a, a whole a boatload of information. You're going to find that those two people in a, in, a, in a context historically picture what the Bible's talking about in Proverbs. Ahab was a wicked king led Israel after his wife's religion, Baal worship. And Jezebel, uh, you know, was the queen of heaven, so to speak. And you're going to find when the Bible talks about in Proverbs, the evil man and the strange women, we're talking about two systems. One is a worldly system. The other one is a religious system. Now, our text today shows us three things about God uh, in relationship to Israel, and it's also true of our relationship together. And you're going to have to allow me to kind of bounce back and forth between the two. I'll try not to be confusing about it, uh, but I want you to see and get the most out of this. First of all, God is a jealous God. That's something that you need to know. God is a jealous God. I'll come back in a little bit, and I'll, 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 I'll reiterate that. I'm not sure what reiterate means, but I heard it on Joel Wolstein use it this morning, and it sounded pretty professional. <laughs> the second thing... God is a vengeful God to them that hurt his people. And the third thing is that God is a God who will exact judgment on sin. Those three things are very important for you to understand, but it's what this text is talking about in that doctrinal sense dealing with Israel, but yet also to you and me in a practical sense. Now, in the Old Testament... Israel completely lost sight of these three things, totally and completely. And it leads to their downfall. Now, in the parallels, I must also tell you that, and I'm sure most of you are aware of this, in the New Testament, Christianity, uh, we have lost sight of those three areas. And for the, for the most part, Christianity, as we know it from the Bible standpoint, has pretty much fallen on its face. By the time we get into history with Israel to 606 B.C., Israel was just an empty shell of what its former glory was. 
Ichabod, the glory of God has departed, was said to be written across the threshold of the, of the tabernacle. She had violated everything that God had given her. She had went after all the other gods. And by 606 B.C., she is broken and busted. In fact, the Bible says that she has a form of godliness. She always was religious, but it was after the religion of the strange woman. She had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. And I find that same thing. I, I, I confess to you today, and as a pastor of 40-plus years, I'm embarrassed to even say it, but I find that same exact thing with tr- churches today. They have a form of godliness. Yeah, they have a Sunday morning service. Yeah, they have a choir. Yeah, they do this, they do that. But they deny the power thereof, and the power thereof is simply the Word of God that God has given us and the principles that are found in it to help us get through the things of life. Now, before I get into this, let me just review a couple of things here that will help us uh, get this passage down. And like I said, I'm going to kind of come from the I'm going to emphasize the doctrinal, but I'm going to move back and forth because I want you to see this as it, as it is and get the whole concept. And uh, in a practical way, hey, it's pretty much self-explanatory. It's dealing with the sin of adultery and its consequences. But when you look at it from a doctrinal standpoint, there is so much more here that you'll want to begin to see. You'll remember I told you a while back, uh, I think it was in our study on Thursday night on the seven pillars that there's two main components that God uses in his dealing with man. In the Old Testament, I showed you how God had formulated, called out, established the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was God's people in the Old Testament by which he was going to reach the world. Anybody who found God in the Old Testament had to come through the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was God's helpmeet. Remember Adam and Eve and I showed you how that they didn't call it a mate. All the animals had mates when God created them all. But when it came to Adam and Eve, it wasn't a help mate. It was a help meet, M-E-E-T. And that's because God had a plan for Adam and Eve was to be the help meet, to help Adam meet that plan. And in the Old Testament, Israel is God's help meet, to help meet God's plan of what he wanted to accomplish. That in the New Testament... The second component that God uses is the church, you and me, the body of Christ. And just as in the Old Testament, nobody could get to God without coming through Israel, in the New Testament, nobody can get to God without going through the body of Christ, the church. And where the Old Testament Israel was God's help meet in the Old Testament, the church today is God's help meet in the New Testament. And that is so vital for us to see and understand. Now, I explained that God looks at Israel based on that. You'll remember. I, I, I told you how that God reckons the nation of Israel like a man reckons his wife. You'll find it in Jeremiah chapter 3, 1 through 14. You'll try it in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, Isaiah 62, 4. You'll find it in many places where God actually says, Israel is my wife. And, You know, the thing you want to remember now, and we've covered all this before, but this is a review to get where we're going. God's Old Testament counterpart, his helpmeet was a nation of Israel, and God looks at her as his wife. The New Testament counterpart, the helpmeet, is the church. And we all know from Song of Solomon chapter 5 that Christ looks at the church as his bride. Point being, 
God has a wife in the Old Testament, Israel. Christ has a bride in the New Testament, the church. Remember those concepts. It's very important. Now, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, uh, Moses was given the Ten Commandments. And of course, we know those Ten Commandments, again, were given to Israel. Why people today try to base their relationship with God or their salvation on keeping the Ten Commandments today, I have no idea. First of all, the Ten Commandments were never given for anybody to keep. The Ten Commandments were given to show everybody how far we fell short of what God expected. They weren't ever given to keep. But God gave that as the basis of the law for the nation of Israel. And number seven was, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now in the Bible, and this is what I want you to understand today, in the Bible there's two kinds of adultery. To fully understand what I'm about to say, you have to get what I'm, where I'm going here. There's the physical adultery in a practical sense that's done in the flesh. A man and a woman. The great study of that in the Old Testament would be David. And then the second kind of adultery, and this is where Proverbs 6 is focusing doctrinally, even though practically it's dealing with the flesh on flesh, there's spiritual adultery. That's leaving God for another God or another religion. Of course, your case study for that will be Saul. Now, in the passage of Proverbs chapter 6, God is talking about Israel committing spiritual adultery, not the physical. She's talking, he's talking about physical, spiritual adultery against him by going after the other gods. Have your Bible here. Look at, look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, and if you don't want to turn to it, just listen to me. It's okay. Uh, uh, it's a thing where I don't want some of you turning your pages to wake the person up next to you. <laughs> Verse 30 says, How weak is thine, talking to Israel now, How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou doest all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman. Imperious means a haughty woman, okay? In that thou, now he's talking to a nation here. He's not talking to one in particular woman. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. He's talking to a nation. In that thou buildest thine intimate place in the head of every way and makest thine high place in every street and has not been as a harlot in that thou scornest hire, but as a wife that committeth adultery, which hath taken strangers instead of thy husband. They give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gift to all thy lovers, and hirest them, that they may come unto thee on every side for thy whoredom. Now, look at Hosea chapter 1 here, or just listen to it. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Bei, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and this is what God tells Hosea to do, and the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Now, you see, both of those passages, that's not a literal, physical adultery. 
That is a spiritual adultery that the nation of Israel, and this is what I want you to see, the nation of Israel is committing against God through the acts and relationship of the evil man and the strange woman. Now, in Hosea chapter 1, you see another great thing here, and I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but God was really big in the Old Testament dealing with the prophets that he had them do object lessons. And the object lessons, when you read it, many guys scratch their head, and many people say, well, I was really weird for God to have him do that. For instance, Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets. You know what his object lesson was? He walked around three and a half years naked preaching the Word of God. Now, all the Bible scholars, you know, all the Bible scholars try to jump to the defense and say, well, God wouldn't do that. He just went around in his underwear. But then the Bible comes back and says that he was naked and barefoot. So I guess he had socks on. I mean, I mean, it, 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 naked is naked. They don't get the point. Now, I understand that's an embarrassing thing for a, a man in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Well, maybe it ain't too embarrassing today that we live in, but, uh, but it should be. Where a, a guy walks around and preaches the Word of God with no clothes on. But they would laugh at him and they may make fun of him, but he would use that. And it's a case where he was using himself as the object lesson. And what he was saying was, you're laughing at me because I'm naked preaching you the Word of God, but the reason why I'm preaching the Word of God to you naked because before God your sins are naked and open before Him. It was a great object lesson. Great object lesson. When Ezekiel's wife died, Ezekiel was told he's not to cry. And he's, uh, he's not to cry. And the reason why? Because it's an object lesson. Uh, Israel's wife, as far as God was concerned, was dead. And it shows the solitude that God had that though he loved Israel, Israel's death spiritually was her by her own hand. Jeremiah is the only man in the Bible told not to marry. He's given the commission of God to go out and preach to Israel as the other prophets are, but he's told, don't you marry. I think it's in Jeremiah 16.1, I think is where it's at. And the reason why he's told not to marry because the whole book of Jeremiah is a picture of the tribulation period. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know in the middle of tribulation period, Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 4, you have the 144,000 that go to preach to the, the Gentiles during the tribulation. They're told not to marry. Jeremiah's pictures that. Now here, Hosea's told to take a wife of whoredoms. It's hard for me to imagine a harlot named Gomer. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer. Conjures up all kinds of things in my mind. <clears throat> but the point here is this, and I got to tell you, that's a violation of the law. And the reason why God told him to take a wife of whoredoms and then to have children by a, a of whoredom is because that Israel, he tells you, because the land hath committed great whoredoms departing from the Lord. It's an object lesson. Every time somebody brought up and said, ah, you're preaching the word of God, but you disobeyed the Lord and you took a wife of whoredoms, he turned that thing right around and nailed them. That's the way God did it in the Old Testament. Now, there's another story in the Bible 
that helps you understand this. Because what we have here and follow through here is, is, is God's wrath and anger displayed against the evil man and the strange woman who basically took God's wife from him, who enticed her, who dressed herself up like a, like a, a harlot that had all the attire and painted her face and the eyelids and all of those things that, that she did and, and, then, and then enticed Israel to leave God. And there's a story in the Bible where this all begins. And I, I have to give this to you so if you older Bible students will grasp it. But even if you're a young Christian and you don't all get it all, just enjoy the story. Look at it like 20 minutes or something, 60 minutes. Don't be like me. I was so stupid it took me an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes one time. But that's, that's me. In Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and 25, we see the beginning of this spiritual adultery. We know that the Bible starts with Genesis. We see the formulation of Israel. Then in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see them coming out and on that 40 years journey. And boy, did the devil begin to do his work. Because in Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25, you have three amazing things in this chapter that really illustrate where we're at here. You have Baal, first of all, who we know now is the false god. Then there's a man by the name of Balaam. Balaam in our story is a false prophet. He gets some things from God, but he's dishonest in what he does with them. And then you have a guy by the name of Balak. Balak in our story is the king of, king of Moab. He's the man who represents our man of sin here. And now here's the storyline to make it easy for you. And if, if you don't have this in your Bible, this is what I did. When I give you this story, either today, I would say maybe later where you could write it on a flat surface, get the tape, go back, listen to this, what I'm about to tell you, and just write this little story in at the beginning. You'll never forget it after that. Never forget it. But here's the story. Baal worship during this time is rampant in the country. Balak who represents the evil man who is the king of Moab, he hates Israel. And he wants to get them destroyed. So he calls the false prophet Balaam in. And basically, here's what he says. I hate the nation of Israel, and I want to destroy the nation of Israel. I will give you any amount of money you want if you will destroy the nation of Israel. Well, Balaam may be a, a, a clown, and he may not be uh, everything that he's supposed to be, and he, 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 he's a guy who's always looking to make a buck. But he does know that he can't destroy the nation of Israel. Bible says, I'll bless them that bless you, I'll curse them that curse thee. He knows he lifts a hand to Israel. He's a dead man but he wants the money. They go back and forth, and the Annie gets up here, and I can't say for sure, but knowing most Baptist preachers today would fit into this category, he probably had this plan long ago and held out to get it up where the money was really there. And he says, all right, I'll, here's what I'll do, Balak. I can't curse him, 
Because if I curse them, I won't live long enough to spend a dollar of that money. But here's what I'll do if you give me the money. I can't curse them, but here's what I'll do. I will tell you how to get them cursed. Balak says, here's your money. He said, all right, here's what you do. You and I can't curse them, but here's what you do. If you get their boys to marry our girls and get our girls to marry their boys and vice versa, they will bring in all the other false gods into their, into their world and you won't have to kill them because God will kill them. That was the plan. That's exactly what they conspired to do. That is the beginning of the Baal worship by a design coming into the nation of Israel. Right there, Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, 25. You find this mentioned in the New Testament in three places if you don't have this marked in your Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about the way of Balaam. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, it talks about the doctrine of Balaam. And in Jude chapter 11, it talks about the error of Balaam. Most people read their Bible, they, they never, never, never read those three things and ever associate it back to Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, 25. What we have here is an incredible picture of how this thing started. And then God's showing us in the New Testament and breaking it down. The way of Balaam in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 was simply this, that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was a false prophet that was in it for the money. He found a way to get around the Word of God to do what he wanted to do. Now, i got to be honest with you. That's not unlike most of God's people that we meet today. He knew what the Bible said. God told him mouth to mouth what he couldn't do. And yet, because he loved the wages, money, of unrighteousness, what he did was find a way to get around it, to do what he wanted to do. And that's what the Bible calls the way of Balaam. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 talks about the doctrine of Balaam. Now, here's the specific teaching on it. This is where the doctrine of Balaam you get God's people to commit spiritual adultery against God, eat things sacrificed to idols, bring in the other nations and the men and the women that God specifically said you're not to take as husbands and wives. They'll bring in their gods, they'll bring in their religion, and you want to destroy the nation of Israel, even though you and I can't do it, that's the way to do it because God will come down and destroy them. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Then in Jude chapter 11, the heir of Balaam. And Balaam's heir was the fact that he forgot about the covenant that God gave to Abraham. The covenant that God gave to Abraham and it all changed with Abraham was simply this. God now said, you know what? If you don't do what's right, if you depart from my word, I'll beat the fire out of you. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I'll kick the snot out of you. I'll clobber you. I'll kill you. I'll wipe you. I'll beat you to death. But I'll never, never, never wipe you out because I gave to your great, great, great patriarch Abraham imputed righteousness. That was the error. The error was no matter what you do to get Israel to sin and no matter how God comes down and judges them, 
You're never, listen to me, you're never going to get rid of the nation of Israel. That's the concept here. That's the concept. Now, this story in Numbers 22, 23, and 25 is the beginning of it all. This is the beginning of the attack on Israel that leads them away from God into an adulterous spiritual relationship with Baal worship and leads to God's anger and His revenge that we're about to look at in Proverbs chapter 6 in the picture of an enraged husband over somebody stealing his wife. Now let's look at, back to Proverbs now, let's look at, pick it up in, in 22. And uh, let's come on down through here to 25. We'll take it into some sections here. When thou goest, it shall, talking about the Word of God where we were at last week. When thou goest, it shall lead thee, and when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproves of instructions are the way of life. To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Now, when you begin to understand what we've been talking about and put this in a context in the light of verses 20 through 23, we now know that all this was given to illuminate the nation of Israel on false teachings so Israel won't fall into the trap as a nation. It was given as a countermeasure to what Balak and Balaam tried to do in the book of Numbers. Verse 24 says, all this light, all this knowledge, all the principles that you and I have made practical applications to in our everyday life, and it's right down the line, doctrinally was given to keep the nation of Israel from the evil woman. The flattery of the tongue of a strange woman, it says, lust not after her beauty, or let her take you with her eyelids. And a great example of this is 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30, when Jehu gets in his chariot, runs off to see Jezebel. She hears he's coming. You know what the Bible says she does? She paints her face and fixes her eyes and then goes over the window to look at him coming in. See, that's the story. I can't blink him like some of you can. But Now, along with that, to illustrate this, there's another great story in the Bible. That's the life of Samson. Samson in his story back in Judges, and it starts around 13 up to around chapter 16, Samson's a picture, a type of the nation of Israel. He's one of the judges that are going to deliver Israel. He hasn't, he's taken a Nazarite vow. That means that he has, he has separated himself from things in this world to do God's job. Samson had a mission from God to deliver the nation of Israel. And God wants to use Samson in this time in Judges just like God wants to use the nation of Israel. And I may go one step further, just like God wants to use you and me. But Samson had a problem, didn't he? Delilah. I always say that Samson's a he-man with a she-problem. First phrase out of his mouth in Judges chapter 14, verse 2 is, I saw a woman. Get her for me. Now, where he's a type of the nation of Israel, Delilah is a type of the strange woman, the evil woman. Notice in our, our story, Delilah uses all her flattery and charms and her beauty 
to get the secret of Samson's strength. Samson just couldn't be away from her. Samson left God in a heartbeat. Samson forgot about the Nazarite vow. Samson forgot about all the things that he said he was going to do with God when he saw Delilah, just like Tom Jones over there in Las Vegas. Whoa, 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 Delilah. He left everything for her, and Delilah is a Philistine. And just as Delilah was the end of Samson, as a strange woman, the strange woman of religion found in the book of Proverbs that Israel runs after, gives all their secrets to. Well, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, in the temple, there were some things that were just dedicated to God. I mean, you had everything else that Israel did, but in the temple, there were some things that were dedicated to God. Nobody else got to see them. Nobody else got to handle them. It wasn't like that God came down in the middle of the night and played with them and looked at them and said, oh, look what I got. It wasn't about that. It was about that they had something special with God and they dedicated things and locked them away where nobody else could see them, even understand what they were, know what they were, or ever touch them. And when these kings come in and they make these leagues with all the other nations and all the religion of Baal worship come in, you know what these kings do? They open those things up and they give those dedicated things to these pagan godless kings. Now let me just step into practical. There's some things in your life and your heart that only belong to God. There's some things in your life and my life that we hide in there, that we get in there, that your wife doesn't know what they are, your husband knows what they are, the guy sitting next to you, there's something between you and God. And God's people do the exact same thing today that Israel did in a, in a, in a historical sense. We, when we leave God and we go after the strange woman or the evil man of this world in religion and the world system, we take those dedicated things to God and display them to the world. That's the picture. There are many stories in the Bible to deal with this. She was part of the devil's plan to stop him from delivering Israel. But in, in study of our, our thing here in chapter 6, you know the end of the story. God's judgment comes down. God avenges Israel. And God wipes them out. The woman killer Samson, though, unfortunately, was killed by the woman. Proverbs chapter twenty uh, uh, 6, verse 26 says, For by means of a whorish woman is a man brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Now, I, I get the practical side of it. I understand it. For the sake of time this morning and what I want you to get out of this, I'm sure you get the practical. Let me show you what he's talking about here. This is a great verse when you put it into the proper context. It says a piece of bread. Bible is likened to bread in the Bible. And I'm telling you right now, there are some, there, I don't care whatever false religion you get into. I don't care whatever heresy you want to follow. There's going to be an element of truth within the heresy. I don't care if it's a Mormon, Jehovah Witness, Church of Christ, you name it. There'll be some truth, some bread mixed in with the error 
because that's the only way it can pass off as being legitimate. The problem with God's people today is that we don't know our Bibles. We don't understand truth from error. We look, at, we look at religion like a guide who's void of understanding looks at a beautiful woman. She may be beautiful on the outside, but she may be as black as the sides of the bottomless pit on the inside. And that's the problem you've got to look at. I mean, you take the Roman Catholic Church. They believe the fundamentals of the faith. You bet they do. You take the Mormon Church. They believe in God. They believe in the Bible. They believe in holy living. They probably believe in family values more than God's people do. Look at Glenn Beck. Look at, look at, uh, look at Mick Romney. He stands up there with his family, good, clean-cut kids, no real problems in their life. They all seem to be good kids, a tight family. There is always a, an element of truth, a little bit of bread in every false teaching. That's the only way people can buy into it. Now, let me just give you this, and I, I, don't, I don't have time to develop all this today, but if the Mormon church would come up and say simply this, and this is totally heresy, if they would come up and they would simply say, you know what? We'll never allow a black man to be a priest in the Mormon church, which they won't. And the reason why we won't is because we believe that way, way, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that Lucifer and God had a fallout, which they did, did they not? Amen. We studied it in our deal. And what happened was is that a third of the angels left God and went with the devil. Is that not true? Amen. Certainly it is. But the reason why we'll never let a black man ever be a, a priest in the Mormon church is because we teach and believe that right now the spirit of, of, of Lucifer is on the planet Kolob, which their astronomers say is in the middle of the galaxy. Nobody else has ever found it. And on that planet is the third of the angels that left having spiritual children, which are spirits. And those spirits come to earth, and because they left with Satan, and Satan is darkness, that the black folks on this planet have the spirit off of that planet and are of the devil. Now, could you imagine getting up in church and preaching that and getting a crowd to come? In all my years eating with Arthur Bryant, I never saw a black person down there. I mean, a Mormon down there. That ain't going in that place. I mean, I've seen Chinese, I've seen Catholics, I've seen Buddhists, I've seen monks, I've seen, I've seen Baptists, I've seen everybody. I've never seen a Mormon. Now, can you imagine the audacity, audacity, whatever the word is? I'll even get ready to cuss here in a minute. Could you ever see... Could you ever understand that kind of blatant, racist? But if you taught that, nobody would ever join. You never hear that. And the reason why you never hear it, because they can never build a church that way. So they focus on family values, clean cut. You ever see them out on their missionary, on their little bicycles? Every time I see them, I get convicted. Because I think they're dying and going to hell, but I got to be honest, they look better than most of God's people. 
They dress conservative. They dress modest. I've never seen a female Mormon missionary in shorts and a halter top passing out tracts. There's always an element of truth in every heresy. And what they do is present the truth, suck you in, and then when you get about four or five levels up the line and you get so indoctrinated and so caught up in it that you just think there's no other way, then they'll lay that stuff on you, see? I'm just telling you, I know it works. Every Mormon that's a missionary has to wear a special suit of underwear. He can never take that underwear off. On his underwear, which is kind of like a a full vested T-shirt and shorts, there's an X over his heart, there's an X over his liver, and an X over his stomach or bowels or whatever, and those Xs represent that if he ever reveals the secrets of the Mormon missionary movement, they'll have his heart cut out, he'll have his bowels cut out, and he'll have his stomach cut out. Now, how many people other than a few, a handful in here knew that? And Mormon missionaries will come to your door all the time and you try to do your best to defend the Lord. I just ask them about their underwear. (laughs) You ever want to see a Mormon missionary depart the premises? Bring your wife and your kids out on the porch and say, we'd like to see your underwear. That's a great principle. Every false religion will have a basic element of truth in it. I don't care where you go. I don't care which what it is. Did you ever examine the devil coming to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, destroy the plan of God? It wasn't all a lie. He left just enough truth in it to pull it off that his lie was legitimate. Notice the last part of, of verse 26. The adulteress will hunt for the precious souls. Now, this old gal has a great missionary movement in mind. She's out to destroy every precious soul she can find. True Bible Christianity is out to redeem every precious soul it can find. It gives a whole new meaning to the idea that you hear all the time that it's always the man who always pursues the woman. That's certainly not true. And brother, in a practical sense, there's lots of women just like this in life, and you'll come across them as you go through the the walks of life. Now look at verse 27, 28, and 29. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not burned? So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife and whoso toucheth her shall not be innocent. Now the burning here is... Uh, defined for you in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, if you don't have it in your Bible, and that's the burning of lust, of desire in person, passion, we call it. Now, in these verses, uh, we, uh, we see the temptation of a beautiful woman who will entice you to make you fall. As I said earlier, she's gorgeous on the outside, but she's as black as the sides of the bottomless pit on the inside. And uh, she's... Uh, uh, you know, I, I've seen people all the time in a practical sense. In Genesis chapter 24, you're given uh, 19 or 20 principles uh, on finding a mate, male and female. 
that thing is in there. We preach it a thousand times, and yet I'll watch people just forsake those things and go right after somebody because she's the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life, and he's the most handsome guy I ever saw in my life, and if I don't land this one, I'll never get another one. And, uh, and then uh, they finally land them, and then three years later, they're divorced, they're in a mess, and uh, that, that, uh, that fish you landed was, turned out to be not a very good fish. Now, in our context here, the temptation of, the, of this outward beautiful woman is a temptation of an outward beautiful religion and a church that symbolizes love, that symbolizes peace, that symbolizes serenity and holiness, but all as fake as a $3 bill. A religion that will draw you in by your lust and then burn you in the end. And I'm talking about the lake of fire. Jesus addressed this crowd in Matthew chapter 23. I mean, they got the beauty. They got the pomp and circumstance. They got all the things that appeal to the eye. Beautiful buildings. I mean, you walk in there. and Why would not God be here? This got to be a holy place. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 28, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like the whited sepulchers, tombs, which indeed, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man bones and of all uncleanliness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That's what he's talking about. This thing has nothing to do in a doctrinal sense about adultery between a man and a woman. It does in a practical sense. I want you to see how God sees this in the context of this. The beautiful cathedrals of Europe. The beautiful cathedrals of America. How beautiful it was in the Old Testament with Baal worship, the golden idols. Why, one of the seven wonders of the world. I don't know if you're familiar with the seven wonders of the world, but one of the seven wonders of the world was the great temple to the goddess of Ephesus. By the way, just as a side note, the world got its seven wonders. There's seven wonders in this book that beat the seven wonders the world come up with. The Roman Empire, the pagan Roman Empire, they had over 600 gods. You'd walk through the, the, the Roman courtyards There'd be gods everywhere. You'd walk through the, the buildings and the temples. There was gods everywhere. They had gods for everything. They had statues and temples where you could go in and whatever your need was, you could go in and pray to that god. Now, today they're saints, but back then they were gods. They did with all their gods what we do with the Bible. Instead of you going to God's, you got one God, you just go to the principles that that one God wrote and you got everything you need. They didn't have that. They had 600 gods. This is why, in case you don't figure it out, they disdained Bible Christianity. They looked at Bible Christianity as a poor man's religion. They, they got the same mindset that, that, that many people got today. You know, people think today that if it doesn't cost a lot of money... It really isn't worth anything. 
We have a counseling ministry, and, and I'll tell you, this church is filled uh, with people who come in with their marriages busted up, their lives propped up, and I deal with it not only in here, I deal with it citywide with people coming in all the time. I don't know how many times somebody's called me and asked me about counseling. I got this problem, this problem, that problem. I lay out, yeah, I'll be glad to. And the last thing they ask me is simply this, well, how much is it going to cost me? And I go into my little song and dance routine, won't cost you nothing. How do I charge you for something that God put in the Bible that everybody has free? Well, I thank you for that, but you know what they say? Well, it must not be any good then. You know where that mindset comes from? The world we live in. You know why there's not 2,000 people down here today? They got lost coming here. Their GPSs were on short order. <laughs> We're in the basement of a warehouse. You make a wrong term and you won't get God, you'll get a mattress. <laughs> you make another wrong turn and you'll be fly fishing this afternoon. God, I love it. The world we live in today, we think that it's got to be a Taj Mahal with millions of this and that, and you got to have big screen TVs and projectors and sound systems and choirs and a band over here, praise band, worship band, and then you got to have you got to have a smorgasbord where if you don't like real preaching, you know, come at ten o'clock and we'll give you watered down preaching, and if you don't like watered down preaching. Come around there and we'll just have coffee. Uh, and for those of you two or three that like preaching, you know, come on up at 10, 10 o'clock and 9 o'clock and well, somebody will yell at you for 10 minutes and then you'll go home. Amen. The Old Testament tabernacle, which was the center, and I don't know if you even know this or not, but when you study the Old Testament tabernacle, God gave Moses the pattern for that. And they, they had that for 40 years as they wandered. When they got into the land, there was a period of time where then it got to be a fixed point in the temple. Most people think that when they went in, it went in to Jerusalem. No, Jerusalem didn't even become the capital till David took it. And that's up there in 1st, 2nd Kings. And it, to then it was at Shiloh. But when they finally took Jerusalem and David made it his capital, picture of the second coming of Christ, then they, they bring the ark down. And there it stays from David's time up through Solomon's time. And we know that David's reign is a picture of the second coming. And we know that Solomon's is a picture of the millennium. And during that time, that tabernacle stays right there and it gets put into a temple. Beautiful temple. You read about it in the Bible when Solomon built it. It's unbelievable what it was. But you notice for that 40 years when it was wandering, it wasn't in a temple, it was in a tent. And do you realize that if you'd have walked around the desert and Sinai over there uh, around that period of time and you'd have looked for that, I'm, I'm looking for the ark, I'm looking for the nation of Israel, I'm looking for where their center of worship is, I'm looking for this big cathedral, I'm looking for big spotlights going up in the sky like they got down in the plaza, I'm looking for steeples like they put on in Europe so wherever you were in the city you could see the house of God. I'm looking for all these things uh, and, and all I see, all I found was a busted down broken old tent made up of badger skin 
skins and all kinds of animal skins. And I even saw a couple of huge army camouflage nets dropped over the thing. I, 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 where is this temple of God? That's it. Amen. The concept, ladies and gentlemen, is not what's on the outside that makes it beautiful and makes it godly. What makes it godly and beautiful is what is on the inside. And you can have the greatest, most beautiful, stupendous building the world has ever seen. 60, 100, 900, 2 billion, trillion dollars. That doesn't make it God's place. What makes it is what you do with the book that God gave you. We've lost that today. We've lost that today because... We got enticed by a beautiful woman, a beautiful religion, a beautiful building. I, I got to be honest with you. You go to Europe, and boy, I'll tell you, I've been to Europe many, many, many times, and I, I, one of my favorite things to go through was the cathedrals. I mean, they're incredible. You know, in America, we talk about history. We talk about 1900 or 1800 or, or 1700, 1776. Well, we got a church in Missouri that was the oldest church. I think it went back to 1820. When you go to Europe, you're talking about churches that were built in 800 A.D. They're in constant state of scaffolding and repair. And wherever you go in this city, I mean, wherever you go in this city, there's steeples that go up four or 500 feet that you can't miss it to get to the house of God. You go into those places, there is cold and dead, and nobody goes to church there. In fact, nobody believes in God in Europe anymore. In fact, the great question in Europe, you know, we talk about over here, uh, what Bible do you use? In Europe, the question among them is, oh, you go to church? Oh, I see. Let me ask you a question. Does your pastor believe in God or is your pastor an atheist? There are pastors of churches over in Europe that don't even believe that God exists. It's all a social concept. That's what happens when religion gets based on appearance and there's no substance to it. And that's where America is headed. That's where America is headed. And I, I, I don't even try to. You know what? I, I look at what God has given of us here. And I'll tell you what, if somebody offered me a $20 million, $80 million building someplace, I, you know what, unless God just came down and wrapped us on the head, I'd stay right where I'm at. I never want to fall into that trap that anybody ever, ever, if we only run 60 people till Jesus comes back, I never want one person coming to this church because of what it looks like. I cannot compete with somebody that builds a $60 million building. But I bet your bottom dollar I'll compete with him when it comes to that book. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Now look at verse 30 and 31, 32, and 33. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold and shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and his honor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Now, this passage will show us in the context of what we're looking at here that the evil man taking God's wife 
will not be taken lightly by God. Verse 30 says, if a stranger steals because he's hungry or somebody steals bread, though that may be wrong and he may pay the ultimate price for it, that's accepted a little more because the guy was hungry and wanted to feed his family. That's better than a man who steals another man's wife. In the context, it's dealing with God's judgment on false religion and their eternal punishment. In Matthew chapter 23, the whole chapter is devoted, as I said, to Christ laying out the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the false religious leaders of Israel, who have led them into the spiritual adultery with the other gods. And he says there in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither you go in yourselves, neither suffer them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and with a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. God deals with them harshly. Harshly. Now, look at verse 34 and 35. For jealousy is the rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom. Neither will he rest content, though he may, that thou may give us many gifts. Now, I go back to what I said earlier. God is a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 says, Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Here it comes. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When you get into the book of the prophets, you see the depth of God's jealousy. And the context of those things will always be this tribulation and the second coming of Christ, much what we're looking at in Proverbs 6. You see exactly what this passage is dealing with. Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 25 says, God will bring the nation of Israel back and God will forgive them, but I will be jealous for my holy name. And of course, his name is Israel. Joel chapter 2 verse 18 says, There, there, uh, there will the Lord be jealous for his land. Nahum 1-2, God is jealous and the Lord revenges. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Zechariah 1, 14 and 15. So the angel that commanded me said, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem, and for Zion with a great jealousy. I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for but a little uh, displeased, and they uh, that help forward the affliction. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 says, Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous uh, for Zion with great jealousy. I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. When in the Old Testament you find God's jealousy and God's revenge, wherever you find it, the context is going to be the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 34, you have the day of vengeance. Isaiah 34, 8. Isaiah 59, 17. Isaiah 61, 2. Isaiah 63, 4. Jeremiah 46. On and on it goes. Are all references to the day of vengeance that he's talking about in Proverbs chapter 6. Now, just as a side note, 
not only is God jealous of, of his wife Israel, but the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, that God is jealous, or Christ is jealous for his bride, for you and for me. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, or 1 through uh, 2, really, would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. And he says, I, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. See, God, God's jealous for his wife Israel, but Christ is jealous for you and me. He doesn't want the same thing to happen to us that happened to Israel. And that's what this is all about. It's all about. And, uh, you know, uh, Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 5. In the New Testament, the old Jezebel just dresses herself differently. She becomes more modern today for modern man. But underneath, she's still the same old person she was back in Proverbs. Revelation 18.5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery League Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And in chapter 18 of Revelation, you have the revenge and the wrath and the anger that he's talking about in Proverbs chapter 6, poured out, laid out for you on the strange woman and the evil man that took the wife of God from him and committed spiritually adultery with her and then destroyed her and then left her. The passage is a great passage that helps us put chapter 6 in the right context. Though great principles and parallels in the book of Proverbs not only for you and me in our everyday life, but also from a understanding it from a fundamental doctrinal aspect. It's warning Israel of the false gods, the strange and evil woman who will steal Israel's heart and love from God to commit spiritual adultery. And yet it shows the, it shows the same time, it shows the, the length and the breadth of God. When you get into the church age, you find the same thing. We studied it the other night and Thursday night with the church at Ephesus, a church that was fully purposed. But what did he say? He says, I've got one thing against you. You left your first love. You didn't lose it, didn't misplace it, you left it. And there in history in the New Testament church is the first place where you begin to see this same concept developing of itself to destroy the church. There's no question about it that the job of the church is restoration. We all know that. We, what we do here is fix broken things. We fix broken lives. We fix broken marriages. We fix broken relationships. It's what we do. When a person's unsaved, we try to fix that by restoring their, restoring their spirit to God and getting them saved and, and teaching them how to live for God. If they're already saved, then we would try to restore that fellowship by putting it together because every problem we have is going to go back to one of those two. But also we now know that God is a jealous God and that he will exact judgment on sin. But God in his tender mercy to his people. In the Old Testament, it's to Israel. In the New Testament, it's me and you. God will judge his people for their sin, but God will restore his people through restitution when they turn from their sin and turn back to him. But God will always exact his wrath and judgment on the evil man and the strange woman. And that's really what you've got here. 
he's going through this whole process of showing you where Israel was, how they got messed up. I've showed you the concepts of how it happened, and now everything lays itself out as God is going to restore them. I leave you with this, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God will visit the iniquity, and we will face the judgment of our sin. But God will show mercy unto thousands of men and women who will turn from their sin, love God, forsake the other gods, and make their relationship only with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. My, my final advice to every Christian that's listening to me today, and you may be listening to this on the Internet next week, or you may get a copy of the tape that somebody gives to you. My advice to every Christian on this planet will be the last one. Get the mercy of God in your life, not the iniquity and the judgment of God in your life. He will judge you for your sin, but he will forgive you of your sin and he will restore you no matter what you've done in your life. And this is why I say all the time around here, I don't care what you've done. Everybody in this room has got a history and got baggage. I don't care what you've done, where you did it, whatever it consisted of. That is none of my business. All I care about is where you're at today and where you want to go from here. Building the principles of God in your life and everything that God wants you to be. Let's pray. Every head bowed and every eye closed.